Hello, and welcome to the Cocktails and Conversation podcast. I'm Dana Marie Rockmore, the founder of the Dinner Party Project and co-founder of The Welcome House. I'll be inviting intriguing guests over to my home to chat about some of my favorite things, cocktails, story, the Enneagram, and rest. So as you may know, or may not know at all, cocktails are kind of my thing. At the end of a long day, or any day really, crafting a drink, whether it's simple or more complex, I really look forward to a delicious cocktail. Plus it makes all conversations better. Tito's Handmade Vodka is always a go-to for me. It's the perfect thing to have on hand to make just about any cocktail. That is what I love about Tito's. It's so versatile. Anything from a Moscow mule to an elderflower martini to a white Russian. Plus, Tito's Handmade Vodka has won a million awards, but for real. It's been distilled six times and won the SF World Spirit Championship. So the next time you are looking for an incredibly drinkable cocktail, pick up some Tito's Handmade Vodka. Plus, you should head over to titosvodka.com to read up more about their story and pick up some delightful recipes. Hey friends, uh, once again, thanks for being here and listening in to all of these amazing conversations. This has been so fun for me. Um, so the cocktail today is actually something I totally made up. I was um, had some mango and was just, I don't know, it's one of my favorite flavors. It is this kind of in-between somewhat season of summer and fall. And so I was trying to think of what that would look like. I was trying to look up different recipes. Um, but I landed on something that I kind of put together. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, anyway, I think I'll call it the in-between. But I, like I said, I had dried mango and I put it into a jar with uh, Tito's vodka. And then I let it kind of marinate for about three days. And so that kind of mango-ness got infused with the vodka-ness. Um, so I used an ounce of that per cocktail and then an ounce of sweet vermouth, which is my favorite. Um, and then I did a quarter of an ounce of cream of coconut. So it's very creamy, very thick, very coconutty. A little bit goes a long way. And then I did also probably about a quarter of an ounce of simple syrup and just basically shook all that up in a cocktail shaker and then poured it in a rocks glass over a um, block of ice and garnished it with a dried orange from Curious Botanicals. And it's very much a sipper, but very delicious. And I feel like somewhere in between fall and summer, we are still very much in summer. But it was really fun also to sit down with my friend Eddie, um, who I've known for several years now and has brought Pashakasha to Orlando, which if you haven't been, you should be. They're celebrating their 10-year anniversary. And I know, as as well as other people, that it's, it is hard to celebrate big anniversaries in a time that we can't gather in a big way. So... Uh, but they, I have been to several live over the years and they're so much fun. It's this platform where basically you have, um, I think like 20 seconds per slide and then you have 20 slides. So I think it's like four to five minutes long. I need to check my math, but basically you can talk on any subject that you want and it's fun. It's 
thrilling, it's really fast paced. It's just, I think, one of the things that makes Orlando special and Eddie is such a special uh, human and individual. So time just to chat and hear more about his story was incredibly fun for me. And he has been through a lot, so much more than I ever knew or imagined or just, yeah, pretty incredible stories from from this guy who's had a lifetime of them. So I hope that you will really enjoy this conversation with Eddie. Hey, Eddie. Hey, Dana. Welcome to Cocktails and Conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Yeah, it's so great to be here in your beautiful dining room. Oh, thank you. Cheers. I wish we could. Cheers. Eating. Yes. Well, I can make a sound. You can make a sound. You can. I I'm right. Yeah. yeah. I am a little bit more, but um, salute. Toast to you. Toast yes. to you. Mm-hmm. I wish we were not quite so far away these days, but... We are still in COVID times. For your listeners, we are three chairs apart. We are. We're in the opposite ends, kind of opposite of the table. ends of a dining table. Yes. Yeah, um, that is the moment that we find ourselves in. Um, so we're starting out with a drink since we are. Yes, you want to talk about your cocktail a little bit? I did make something up. So did you created this cocktail? I did. Is that right? As wow. far as I can tell, because the reality is that I had mango. And I really love mango. Um, and so I was like, well, I could infuse it with some Tito's or put it with Tito's. And so I just put it in the fridge for a couple of days. And then I was like, huh, what am I going to like do with this? So then I was like, well, also my other favorite thing is sweet vermouth, like we talked about. And then I also just added, I had some coconut cream, cream of coconut. So very creamy. Just kind of yeah, it's got that creamy quality. Does yeah. Have a cream, cream so I have to ask you, like, uh, you infused a mango. What does that mean exactly? Like you snuck up on it with a syringe right. and like injected Tito's no. into it, or it is the most simplest thing. So I had the mango and then I put it in a jar and then I put just the Tito's vodka in it uh. and then I just screwed on the top and let nature take its and course. Put it in the fridge for about three days. Wow. And then just let it, so it kind of gets infused, the vodka gets infused with the mango because it just seeps all of that mango flavor mm. into it. I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world. And then you just take it out and you've got whatever flavor. So yeah. you can do it with so many different flavors. So during quarantine, yeah. we, we all are that mango, aren't we? We are infused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's my, how I feel. My body is probably pretty infused with a lot of... Um, yeah. And um, stuck alcohol. in a jar. <laughs> yeah. Stuck in a jar filled with alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's kind of our life right now, which is pretty crazy. But during this time, I have been making a lot of cocktails, which I, which has been a blessing. Yeah, I, I have too. I've been experimenting, yeah. trying new things. Yeah, yeah. So I want to hear what is a go-to drink for Eddie? Like what is oh, man. a no-fail you just know this is going to be your drink. That is a great question, by the way. Yes. My go-to drink is a just a classic martini, mm -hmm. right? With Plymouth gin, mm -hmm. a little splash of Nwali Pratt, uh, dry vermouth okay. over the ice. Not Some people get very 
you know, weird about their vermouth, right? I used to actually, when I was younger, like in my 40s, that was when I first got into cocktail culture. I was working in Manhattan. I yeah. was coming home every night on the train to New Jersey. Were you mad men? Were you mad I was men? living the mad men yeah, dream, right. yes, only in the 90s. Right. So anyway, I... I um, at that point, I got. I was like, "Well, I'm working in Manhattan. I have to have a martini every night, right. don't I?" So I would. I had a. Uh, <laughs> not every night. Is, right. Just every week. He's only responsible of me to do. Right. right. It had. It went with the with the job. In fact, by the way, uh, side note, I, at the time I had a boss, Sharon Weinstein, who was just the greatest boss I've ever had, and Sharon liked to have a martini with lunch and insisted that I have one or two with her. All right. So we would go out to lunch. Not a three martini lunch? Like the real Mad Men era? Well, you know, you got to remember this. In the Mad Men era, uh-huh. a martini was probably about one ounce. So a three martini lunch was like three ounces. They right. were smaller then. Okay. Um, a normal martini now is three ounces. So when right. you drink it's one, like, yeah, you're, you're having three from the Mad Men era. Right. Not as diluted. Right. Right. And and Sharon liked uh, Tangeray. Okay. And there was a restaurant she liked to go to, and the, their Tangeray martinis were like the size of a birdbath. <laughs> we would, you know, it's your boss, right? She's like, are you having one? Like, yeah, I, sure. If right. you insist. Yeah, of course. Right. Um, but here's the thing. Like, like nobody, nobody talks about this, but in, in Manhattan, right, um, if you have three, four, five ounces of gin, that just makes you like an ordinary person. Hmm. That just brings you down from your like like hyperactive cutthroat, right. you know, I'm on fire thing Life. to just being a normal dude. Right. So it's not as bad to have a couple martinis at lunch in Manhattan as it is like in Florida. In Florida, you'd be on the, you know. Floor. On the floor. Right. Yeah. Three ounces of anything at one time. Yeah, you got to be super a, careful. Yeah. Right. You got to hydrate. Especially, unless you're, yeah, unless yeah, you're drinking here. water and eating a lot to coincide with. But so, a martini is like incredibly achievable at home. It's super easy. It's, yeah. It's, it is really like the, the pinnacle of all cocktails, in my opinion. It's like the, there's nothing up there with it. It's at the very apex of the pyramid. Right. Um, it's very classic. Yeah. Crisp. It has to be gin. Has to be gin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Right. And um, oh, I was going to say, so so in my early days when I was being very fussy about it, I would, uh, I put my dry vermouth in an atomizer and I would spray it on the glass like a mist. Whoa. And at some point, you know, in my 50s, I was like, well, it's a mixed drink, right? Come on. Don't be a fool. Come on. Just put the put the dry vermouth in the drink. So you I just. Atom- I'm sorry. You atomized the, all of the dry vermouth? I don't understand how this works. Well, I would pour the dry vermouth in a little tiny like spritzer. Okay. And then I would spritz like a fine mist on the glass before I poured the pure gin in. Got it. So it just had the merest, you know, sort of faint odor of vermouth. Right. But it actually is a better drink if you just slosh some vermouth in it. You know, like, come on. It's two things. It's gin and vermouth. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, has a, it has a much more rounded kind of uh, character to it. Right. 
I've given this a lot of thought, Dan. That's a great answer. No, I love a specific drink because I feel like I feel like everyone should have a, like a go-to, something that brings right. you so much joy. I would also, for the benefit of your listeners, say yes. don't drink one every night. That's probably not a good idea. It's a, that, that might be a lot. It's intense. Right. Yeah. If yeah. you're working in Manhattan, sure. Okay. Drink all you want. But yeah, not, so. not here in Florida. Right. Take it easy. You're not driving in New York ever. So that also helps that a too. lot too. Right. Yeah, for sure. So pre-COVID, in times that we would often go out to establishments to also enjoy mm. a cocktail out in the world, um, where are like maybe like two or three places around town that you are some of your favorite places to grab a drink? Oh, a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. You know. I hope I don't mangle this, but um, Courtesy Bar, right, is on Orange. That's on Orange. That was an is, is? Is. Still? I'm asking. I believe they're open. Yeah. That's a great bar. It is a great bar. Yeah. The bartenders there really know what they're doing, Mm -hmm. and the atmosphere is great. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, they do everything to an incredibly beautiful execution. Yes. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that place. Boy, I don't know. You know, it's honestly, it's it's been so long that I'm forgetting. Uh-huh. You know, I, I would have had a ready answer with a bunch of, of choices before this. Um, there's there's um, uh, in Sanford. I'm trying to remember. Um, Brass and bitters. No, it's what is the the place the with the Burl? Yeah, the Imperial. The Imperial. I was going to say the Burlwood Furniture Store. Yes. Yeah, there's an Imperial in Sanford. I know. I haven't with, made it out there yet. Yeah. Again, a great shame. bartender. Right. I've forgotten his name, but Frank or something. And, and man, he's really good. Um, it takes forever to get your drink because he's really doing it. You know what meticulous. I mean? He's he's meticulous about it. Exactly. Good word. Mm-hmm. And that is a pretty great bar. And that guy is, is really good. That was a favorite place to go. And then we would go have dinner across the street at the Smiling Bison. It was a pretty nice night. Yeah. Um, yeah. I miss the Smiling Bison being kind of down the road from here. Right. Right. I'm pretty close to downtown. To Bumby, which yeah. gets me down to Bennett pretty easily. Um, that one closed, right? I mean, they just moved to Sanford. Oh. Yeah. I thought for a while they had two. I don't think so. I think they just transitioned um, when they did a couple years ago. But, I mean, who knows? I could be wrong. But they had this, like, duck egg pizza at Mm. Smiling Bison. That was pretty killer. Wow. Yeah. I am missing pizza these days. One of the great things we we had there was we you could sit at the back of the restaurant opposite the um, kitchen mm-hmm. on like a bar situation mm-hmm. on bar stools and you would talk to the chef right. as he was making stuff. And one night, the chef had made um, pate. Mm-hmm. Like chicken pate, mm-hmm. chicken liver pate, yes, with cocoa, with like dark cocoa. Chocolate? Yeah. yeah, so it looked like a like a piece bar? of fudge, right? Right, and you would think that that would be the most disgusting thing ever, right? right? Chicken liver and chocolate, and oh my goodness, it blew your mind. It was yeah, yeah, it was insane. I do love chicken liver pate. So I can imagine yeah. maybe it worked. tweaking a little bit of something of it, but man, 
one of our guest chefs used to make that often, and it was my favorite thing yeah. on the menu. <gasps> now you make me hungry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're the good. first time I ever had pate, I was 21 years old and I've, I was going to Hawaii. I, had, I was a janitor and this was back in the 70s. And in the 70s, you know, a janitor made a living wage mm -hmm. that you, I saved enough money to go to Hawaii and I quit being a janitor. I'm like, I'm going to Hawaii, man. Yeah. So I flew on uh, this airline. I forget the name, but they went out of business years ago. But they made some kind of mistake and they put me in first class. Hey. And I don't hate it. No. 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 That's and, I mean, life. I I did not really belong in first class. Yeah, but there I was. Sure you did. And yeah, I quickly I got used to it. Right. It's amazing how quickly you can get used to stuff like that. Right. And the very pretty stewardess brought me like pate on a tray and I was like, what? <laughs> What's this? What's this? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Right. Yeah. But then you were like, that's freaking delicious. I was very impressed. Yeah. Well, this is a perfect segue into our next topic, which is story and how we don't really choose where we get placed in the universe and we don't mm. choose our family of origin and we don't really choose our DNA and how we're built and all a myriad of things, socioeconomic, you know, status and all that kind of stuff. So I would love for you to share with us just about your early days of Eddie. Like, what was it like growing oh, up like in your home and you have siblings and mm -hmm. are you like, how, how was that the feeling of, of your like growing up years? Yeah. Well, to your point about we don't choose, I would just say this. When my daughter was maybe two and a half or so, she one day, like at breakfast, just casually dropped the information to my wife and myself that she had chosen us at the people store. At the uh, what? The people store. The people store. Mm -hmm. Ah, that a nice lady had helped her like look at couples and <laughs> do you want you know and she found us and yeah. that was like very appealing and she was like yeah i want them and she picked us to be her parents okay and rebecca and i were you know we later we said to each other like when she said that did you feel like something go up your spine like a chill <laughs> i was mm -hmm. like yeah yes i did because it seemed like she was young enough that it seemed like a kind of fresh memory you know, not some made-up kid thing. Mm -hmm. it's, it had a sort of credibility about it. And she it was, was closer to that. Yeah, reality she could still remember. That you know, we just have like no conception of right. I can sort of remember going to Courtesy Bar. You know, it's like that. Right. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, a dim memory right, of dim. earlier pleasures. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's possible right. that we do choose, mm -hmm. which you know, I think most of us would say, really, like, why on earth would I have chosen that? But some people think, you know, that we choose because there's some lesson we need to learn, mm -hmm. something we need to get more comfortable with or overcome or learn how to do. Okay. So it's possible that we, you we do choose. You chose into this and, life. Mm -hmm. So tell us why you chose this life. And oh, how did man. it feel as you were growing up? Well, so I grew up in Southern California in the 60s. And it was, Where you know, in, California? in Los Angeles, basically oh, okay. Los Angeles area. 
And it was sort of, you know, it was, it really was like this, the movie cliche of that era, you know, the, the sort of carefree feeling, the rock and roll in the air, the convertible cars, mm -hmm. you know, my, my father was an optometrist. Ah. Yeah. So he was, he was his own boss. Uh, he was in a great location. So the money just was like pouring into his optometry business, right. you know, and it's, you were living the good life. Yeah. He was living the good life. Okay. And I got to ride along. Um, and being an optometrist is a great job because, you know, you're, you're a doctor, quote unquote, but you never like have to touch anything gross or do surgeries or, yeah, or anything. Right. You're just like peering into people's eyes and you're doing a little math calculation and boom job done here's your prescription yeah there you go right thanks doc so um you know we had we had a really nice life at that time and everything was great i i think that you know when you grow up in a kind of uh i mean it was a bubble within a bubble within a bubble right it was very upper middle class mm -hmm. in Southern California. I thought, you know, how did I Your know? reality. It was, yeah, doesn't everybody live like this? Right. This is it, you know? Um, and, and that bubble burst when I was about 13, I think I was, or so, when my father had a stroke. And it was a very severe stroke. Okay. And he was in his 40s, but uh, it was, it would have, they said it would have killed him if he had been older but he didn't 40s die. is not that old no it's not 45 is not that old no. and so anyway he survived um for a while it was pretty pretty bad but he but he did physical therapy and vocal therapy and he got his speech back and his right. his mobility back and went back to work and you know like um the way people do he just it was like let's all just pretend this never happened you know but but it did happen. Was he capable of returning to his yeah, career? Yeah, he, re he returned to his job probably nine months later or something. Something oh, like that. Okay. But it was a very traumatic event for our family. It really sure. kind of fractured everything and changed everything. And it was a, you know, it was a kind of dark thing. And, and again, no one had, no one had any... Um, no one had any tools, particularly, to, to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, again, you know, I think my parents just kind of mostly pretended it didn't happen and tried to um, go on. But, but you know, because he was out of work for the bulk of a year, they sold their house. We, you know, there was a sort of drastic reduction in our lifestyle, mm -hmm. um, which was another sort of thing to deal with, like, Kind of like um, we're watching Shit's Creek right now. Oh, and on yes. some weird level, I can sort of relate. It's what way season more... are you on? Well, here's what happened: we we didn't really like season one. We just sort of dabbled in it. Okay. And then somehow we were watching some season two, and we liked it. And then this week it won a bunch of Emmys, and so it won we... pretty much all the Emmys. all the Emmys, right? <laughs> right. So we decided let's just stop where we are and start over at the beginning now that we know you know how that, good it that is you're gonna like it let's just yeah let's right. give it give it the entire thing so okay. we started with episode one like at the beginning of the week and we're already at number 12 right now okay yeah i like to hear this yeah you're in for so much great stuff oh my goodness i know and i think yeah. also like during this time um 
I've, I've seen all of it and then I've rewatched a good amount of it because it's just a like a beautiful <laughs> like we need things to make us laugh like in this time and so like I think that for, for me that's right. been like one of the shows that has had the capacity to do that yeah I laugh quite a lot through it yeah pretty the loudly. writing is pretty brilliant yeah and or sometimes the execution just, yeah 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 um, so, so yeah, it was not as dramatic as Schitt's Creek, but, it, but it felt like a big kind of come down. Right. And you had a big awakening or, well, I wouldn't call it an awakening. It was more like a, a humbling, you know, a humbling. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And did you have any siblings? Yeah. I have a sister who's a okay. year younger than me. And so, um, we were both in our early teens probably not a good time to have something like that happen to you. Right. And my father, you know, was, was quite diminished, even mm. though he fought his way back. He was still really, you know, not the same guy right. anymore. And so that really changed the dynamic in the family too. And it kind of led me to, um, it led me to many years of kind of, um, I don't know what to call it exactly, a kind of withdrawal. Because mm. I tend to be, I'm a pretty you know, um, outgoing, extroverted, optimistic, buoyant kind of person fundamentally. But during those years, and they were kind of crucial years, mm -hmm. I was not that guy, you know, I was hurting. Sure. So, and, and I mean, if you had told me. It's pretty traumatic. Yeah, it was very traumatic. Yeah. So, so when I was, you know, old enough to start drinking and doing other things, I, did those things, you know, and I, I, I would have said at the time that my father's stroke was way behind me, um, but it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. It at was, thirteen, knowing how to process something of that magnitude would have, like, been pretty, like, very, very self-aware or very. You'd have had to, I think, had a lot of like tools. Therapy. Therapy. Is what I should have had. Right? Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. There, I mean, at 13, we are just trying to figure out how to get up and put our pants on in the morning, right. let alone knowing how to process on a lot of layers like what you went through. Yeah. It wasn't until I was, I, I forget exactly how old I was, but I was in my um, mid 30s when I really kind of really did process it. Early, early to mid 30s. Mm -hmm. I was in a hotel and doing my job, which is corporate communications, doing a large conference in, I think it was Lake Tahoe. And I was reading some sort of, you know, self-help books, which I am, used to be addicted to. And I, I sort of got the wherewithal to sort of figure out how to process it and get it out. And I did mm -hmm. at that hotel. Um, like I allowed myself to like grieve yeah. Over what had happened. And it was like, 50, I'm not good at math, but 15 years later, mm -hmm. something plus, like that. Or yeah. It's plus. Right. I should be able to figure that out. What's 13 plus 15? It was probably 20 years later, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're so, in your mid-30s. Right. Yeah. From like, let's say 14 to 34, something in there. And again, I, if you had asked me, you know, are you are you over your father's stroke? I would have said, yeah, sure, I'm over it. But turned out, I wasn't sure. But that was a that was a big relief, just being able to sort of access the the grief and let it out. Mm -hmm. 
Because I think feelings just want to be felt, you know, and when you shove them down and you and you won't pay attention to them, yeah. they come out some other way. Um, and in my case, they probably in my late teens, early 20s, it came out in terms of like a kind of self-destructive thing. Hmm. So... Getting quite, the next getting question. quite intense, isn't it? No. Yeah, what's your next question? Is, I can hardly wait. Right. <laughs> this is the whole purpose of this of this podcast. I love stories, right? Um, but I would love to know kind of like who was Eddie during like middle school, high school years? How did that, how did you show up in the world? I mean, you'd been through something that was pretty major and then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I had one thing going for me, which was that I, at the age of 10, I discovered, I guess you would say, that I was a writer. And when it occurred to me that I was a writer, I knew, you know, that was, I, I had no doubt. I, you know, a lot of little kids will say, oh, I want to be this, I want to be that. Right. I never said I want to be a writer. I was like, I'm a writer. I know I am. Wow. So I just would write. And I was... I had a natural ability at it. And so by the time of high school, um, I had that, I had that sort of rock to mm -hmm. cling to for some kind of self-esteem. So I, I was really fortunate that my high school had a high school newspaper. Okay. And you're still in the LA area. Yeah. I'm still okay. in LA. So yeah, things were pretty dark. And then I joined the high school paper and they were the, so, so this was, is right, like, right at the cusp of entering high school is like you're kind of going through a lot of family trauma. Yes. Right. 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 Seventh, eighth, ninth grades were just awful. Awful. And then, yeah, 10th grade. So the the paper was basically run by the 12th graders. They were seniors and I was a freshman. And for by whatever lucky chance, like that group of seniors was the the most amazing group of people like they were they were like junior adults they were already it was like they were already 40 <laughs> they had their personalities they were fully developed they were funny as hell they right. were all smart they were hyper articulate they were super kind and uh beneath their kind of it was almost like a sitcom or something they were bantering and like the the wisecracks would fly all day long but they were really also very sweet and i think that they kind of sense that i was this you know hurting mm. uh, messed up introverted you know mess of a kid and they they reached out to me yeah and they were you know perhaps a little over enthusiastic about my writing and my ability so they took me under their wing and i got to like do stuff on the paper and eventually like through high school became the editor of the paper and that was kind of a oh. you know that was a that was a that's a confidence pathway posture. yeah that was that helped me not go all the way down the tubes you know i had that going for me mm-hmm and that was also, I mean, it was. It also gave me a kind of permanent. Um, I don't know what the how to put this exactly, but it's like you know, there's a kind of almost cliched relationship between people in the press and people in government. Mm -hmm. Like people in government, I'm painting with a very broad brush, but it's like they're 
they're they tend to be kind of pompous and self-important and hypocritical and hiding secrets and doing wrong things and covering it up and taking advantage of the system again i'm painting with a broad brush and the journalists are like poking them asking them tough questions tearing them down exposing their hypocrisy mm. kind of speaking truth to power and so that i took very naturally to that and the and the people at my high school student council That's interesting hopefully none of whom are listening um i don't think they are you never know with facebook but but they were by and large a bunch of pompous assholes in waiting <laughs> and they were they were all ready to go to real government mm-hmm. you know they were they were just as bad Do you know as, if any of them did I don't know because again, you know, once high school is over, like I, I put a lot of miles between myself and those people. You're out of there. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know what became of a lot of them. Right. But that was sort of, you know, I had that kind of, um, I was, I was inculcated with that kind of rebellious spirit and that questioning of authority and that kind of anti-establishment, um, you know, worldview. Right. Kind of became mine. Did your parents um, encourage that or did they try to distance you from that or like? Well, to, to my father's credit. Angst against the world? My father was very, very determined never to never to put his thing on us. Right. Never to tell us what to do, never to to advance like his own views, never to kind of convert us to his way of thinking or mm-hmm. tell us, you know, who to become or mm-hmm. who not to become. Yeah. And, he, and thank goodness for that, because, you know, my aunt over the years has told me stories. <laughs> it's pretty horrifying. Like his actual beliefs, you know, his racism and homophobia and anti-Semitism were pretty bad. Yeah. But I didn't. She knew those things as his sister, but I didn't. Right. Know like he kept that away from me, which is great. So he didn't have any kind of, there was no, um, there was no kind of censoring of, of anything I might want to do or be, Ah, which was great. Yeah. Kind of gave you carte blanche. Right. And my mother, you know, would warn me that my, you know, I was paying too much attention to the paper and my, you know, my biology grades weren't very good and I wasn't going to get into a decent college if I didn't, you know get more rounded and I was like ah you're full of crap and she was right (laughs) so I my grades in you know English and journalism and that stuff were great but my like science math grades were not great sure so in the end I went to state college which was fine because again in, in those days state college was fantastic okay and it was like $90 a year Oh, Lord. And so even I had $90. Paid my way through college being a janitor, you know. Uh Uh-huh. It was super cheap. Where did you, what was the school? It was California State University at Northridge. Okay. Yeah. What did you study in that time? So my degree was in honors English, um, which was, you know, more like you had to, it was sort of, almost like a junior master's program you had to take oral exams and you had to read a lot of literature and Mm -hmm. know what you were talking about and really like dig into it Mm. yeah it kind of sounds pretty awesome well you know yes and no i think the virtue of it is that that 
and again, I don't want to offend anyone listening, but in my experience, English majors know how to write. Whereas like communication and journalism majors generally aren't as good at writing. You know, it's a good degree for a writer. Mm-hmm. Although you learn to write by reading. You don't, no one can really teach you to write. They mm-hmm. can kind of give you tips and tricks. And, and if you've got actual talent, kind of like bring yeah. you along. But you, it, it seems to me that you've either got the talent for it or you don't, you know. Um, by the time you reach college, you know, theoretically, you've already learned grammar and sentence structure and all that. <laughs> right. But even those things Hopefully. aren't as important as people think they are, mm. you know. There was a friend of mine on Facebook put up a video about the use of the Oxford comma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a little debate going on about the Oxford comma, and it's kind of silly, right? Because right. the truth is the writer gets to decide. It's all about clarity and, and rhythm and everything else, and it's up to the writer. Sometimes you use one, sometimes you don't. There's, it's not like, oh, always use one or never use There's one. There's no steadfast rule. No. There are really, for, for once you know what the, what the basic rules are, if you're a good writer, then you proceed to use whatever ones you feel like and hmm. discard the others. Right. But it's not science. It's not math. It's art. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Math was my worst subject. Yeah. It probably still is. But um, so how so how did you get from taking a flight in first class to Hawaii? <laughs> you're done with college. And then you land in Manhattan. Like, where, what were the, yeah, what the were those? flight was going the total wrong direction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what were those uh, transitional years? Mm. Or like what brought you to what, look, what sounded like a career? Well, let's see. So I was I was twenty one. So what happened was I I I think that I found college kind of boring, and I realized that I wasn't quote unquote learning to write, and it was just something to do, but it wasn't like getting me anywhere. Like I, you know, the the pathway seemed to be that the English professors wanted me to become an English professor, mm-hmm. like it was a sort of school, like an incubator for turning out more of them. Right. And I really did not want to be an English professor. You know, I had done some tutoring and I taught as a TA. I had my own class for two semesters. And I, it was like being Sisyphus, you know, pushing a rock uphill and then watching it roll back down. Like at the end of every semester, they go away and you get a new crop right. and you got to teach them. And then I was like a lifetime of that would be. No, thank you. No, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. And I had this feeling that I really wanted to be in the real world. That was how I put it to myself. And I'm not sure I knew what the real world was, but Uh it was not that. It was not the college track. So I really didn't know what to do with myself. And at the end of college, I met my wife to be, um, and we ended up, you know, getting married and then it was like, well, you better get a job. So I got a job first as a downtown L.A. as a proofreader. And that was really fortunate. A little bit of happenstance mm-hmm. you know, as far as not choosing your fate, but your fate unrolling around you. So I was a proofreader at a big accounting firm. And this was the 80s before anybody had a PC. Mm-hmm. And the accounting firm would do these gigantic spreadsheets that we had to proofread. Most of the proofreading, it was about 20, 
5% writing and about 75% spreadsheets. And I worked in a little tiny room about the size of your dining room with two other people. Yeah. And we each had a desk. And the boss was Elsie, who was this... I thought she was middle-aged, but she was probably like 38. <laughs> Puerto Rican lady. She was the greatest proofreader ever in the world, right? And she gave me like a non-repro blue pencil, which no one knows what that is anymore. But back before computers, you know, when you... When when a piece of type was typeset and you and you checked it, it would you would check it, right? And then it, it was very time consuming to come up with a piece of like typeset. So they wouldn't like redo it. They would write on it with a non-repo blue pencil and then it would be photographed. So every page of a book or every page of a magazine or a newspaper mm-hmm. in those days was photographed. It was put on a big giant table with a camera mounted above it, photographed, and the photograph is what was printed. That's oh. how it worked. Okay. So a non-repo blue pencil didn't photograph. So, ah. you know, I would take like a straight edge and this pencil and I would like draw lines down all the decimal points on this huge spreadsheet and make sure the decimal points lined up. Um, for example, right. that was part of it. And then also I had to take an adding machine and I had to add up all those numbers myself oh. and make sure they were correct. Yeah, that sounds awful. It was brutal. Yeah. It was like boot camp. But what was so great about it that I couldn't have predicted was that now uh, in my throughout my career people will hand me like a you know piece of paper or a sheaf of papers and i will look at it and immediately i I will see okay there's a misspelling there's a typo uh there's a period missing there's two spaces where there should be one space or vice versa and my eye goes right to it of this amazing woman yeah elsie before elsie i was just a, a slob after LC, it was like, no, I can, I see it. Right. I'm like a, I'm like a big game hunter in the jungle who sees a leaf shake and knows there's a tiger. <laughs> it's like, that's the kind of eye so she, she gave honed me. your skills even to the Yeah, it was finer. insane. Yeah. So that was really fortunate first job, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I kind of, you know, like crawled my way up the ladder until I got a corporate job at Prudential Insurance and was a writer for them. And that led to the office I was in, uh, they reorganized because Prudential was always reorganizing, like all the time, you know. Because they were growing so much? No, because they're a gigantic, titanic of a company that that all they have to do is rearrange the deck chairs because it's sailing under its own power and you can't turn it or anything. Right. Prudential's money makes money. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They don't. It doesn't matter whether anyone at Prudential does a good job or not. It absolutely, it has no more impact than like somebody playing shuffleboard on the deck of the Titanic. It, it absolutely doesn't matter. Right. So you see these people the... running around, you know, man the poop deck, oh, full speed ahead. It's like right. you are deceived, you know. It really didn't matter. So they would reorganize all the time, rename departments, you know. Just, I, I worked for them. better to do. Exactly. Right. I was I was with them ten years, and I in those ten, 10 years. Ten years. Yeah, five and five, five okay. in California and five in Jersey. Okay. Yeah, they moved me to New Jersey midway through. Okay. And to work in Manhattan. 
No, that was later. That was later. Okay. I, I went to I went to work in Jersey because I really wanted to work in Manhattan. Yeah, that was the, that was the goal. Move to, yeah. Right. Yeah. So the the um, sorry, I lost the thread. It's okay. You're working yeah. at Prudential in LA. Yeah, but there was something I was gonna some point I was making about the not mattering. Oh, I was yes. Sorry, I was gonna. Maybe you can do a little editing there. <laughs> in the ten years I was with them, I was in four different departments. Okay. Like communications departments with four different personnel, four different departments entirely in the 10 years. That's how much reorging they did. Right. So it was, it was an interesting place to work. Was your job mostly the same? Yeah, it was exactly the same. Just a different title? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there was a certain kind of working my way up the ladder in the sense that when I started, I was one of five writers and I was, you know, kind of the lowest of the low. My job at the beginning was to go cover retirement parties because people would have worked there 25, 30, 40 years. Right. And they were retiring after like 40 years with Prudential and they'd have like a big party. All the work would shut down for the afternoon and, you know, the the lady in accounting would have her retirement party and she was still a young woman. You know, she'd be like 60, mm-hmm. you know, having her retirement party or 47 or something, you right. know, after 30 years with them. It was a gravy train, man, back then. So I would cover the retirement party and then right. I would write it up for the in-house newspaper that we had. You <laughs> oh know? Yeah. Right. It was just this big... Kind of a they crazy had, job. Oh my goodness, yeah. They had a cafeteria... And everybody, when I came there, people were bitching because they had just done away with the free lunch. Lunch wasn't free anymore, like it had been for like a century. Mm-hmm. And they were quite put out because they were used to their free lunch and like bagging everything up and having a free dinner, you know, on the company. Right. So the sort of the era of big spending was like drawing to a close. They very, I got in on the very tail end of that Mad Men era at Prudential. Yeah, so um, I started out doing that. And by the time I left 10 years later, I was flying around on the company jet with the chairman and his wife doing work for them, like a kind of dog and pony show that that we invented for them to do. And it was, you know, pretty nice. Right. Like I was talking earlier about how quickly you get used to first class. (laughs) You'd be amazed how quickly you get used to a private jet right with its own stewardess named celeste fair enough the possibly the greatest moment of my entire life and i'm i'm even thinking about the birth of my daughter but i think it might have been when i boarded the company jet one morning at like 10 a.m in my blue suit and celeste said to me would you like your usual martini mr Sullivan?" Then I was like, yes, Celeste. (laughs) 10 a.m.? Not too early. (laughs) Yes. You feel like you arrived in that moment? Well, I think part of me realized that it wasn't, you know, really my life wasn't usual, you know. Yeah. It wasn't going to continue. I mean, I definitely had the thought, like, why isn't this my life? But I'll take it right now, you know. Mm -hmm. That was pretty cool. So how did you transition into Manhattan? 
when I left Prudential, uh, there was a there was a company, another insurance company in Manhattan that I got a job with called Guardian, and it was very similar. So I just transitioned from Prudential to Guardian. Okay. It was funny though because Prudential is is a you know in the world of insurance it's like the biggest. So even though it's with hindsight it doesn't seem like a big deal. It, it was a big deal at the time. It was like mm-hmm. you're leaving like a behemoth Jupiter <laughs> to go live on Mercury. Right. It's like what? This was yeah. Not the same. Sure. Was it like a lateral move or? It was basically the same job at a different company. Okay. But it was Manhattan and the people were way cooler, way cooler, smarter, funnier. You know, it was like that first group in the high school paper all over again. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like wisecrackers, you know. So you felt like at home and validated there? Well, I don't know if validated. I'm not sure, but I certainly felt at home. I mean, it was the kind of environment I really wanted to be in, mm-hmm. you know. Like, New Yorkers are just endlessly entertaining. Mm-hmm. They've all, even the even the lowest of the low in New York, has they have their shit together, their wits about them, they know what they're doing, yeah. they know how to live in a big city, they're alert mm-hmm. and awake, and they're hilarious very yeah. often. And they have huge hearts. That doesn't like get said very much, but they're really big-hearted people. Mm. So, how long did that keep you around in New York City? I was there four years. Four years. Yeah, from ninety-eight through oh two. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So now we're in the two thousands. Yeah, we're at the turn of the century. What everything looked was full. the impetus of? Um, how did you land in, in Orlando? This episode of Cocktails and Conversation is brought to you by The Dinner Party Project. The Dinner Party Project is all about connecting humans around the dinner table. Right now, we are mostly based in Orlando, Florida. Whether it's joining seven strangers in an intimate setting around a dinner table or sitting in the street of Orange Avenue with 100 others watching flamethrowers, we love helping people feel connected to others and their city. We also offer private parties, so if you have a birthday, anniversary, team building dinner, or corporate event coming up, we can create a custom, memorable event that you and your guests won't soon forget. We also help brands connect with their consumers by exposing their product in an elevated way to their target demographic. So if you live in the Orlando area and haven't joined us yet, what are you waiting for? We can't wait to hear your story around the dinner table. For more information, you can visit us at thedinnerpartyproject.co. Well, so we were, Guardian was downtown at the tip of the island. And we were about, down at the tip of the island, Hmm. the streets get very narrow. It's like the Dutch colonized the tip and it's Mm -hmm. just a bunch of winding Dutch streets. So a block there is pretty short. And we were eight blocks away from the World Trade Center Mm. on 9-11. So it was a traumatic experience to go through that day and then the aftermath. Everyone talks about the day, but the aftermath, you Mm. know, was like my father's stroke. It changed everything. Where were you? I was eight blocks away. Yeah, just in your office. In my office, I was the first one in that day and I, I saw it happening like outside my window. Holy sh- yeah, yeah, right. Holy moly. 
Yeah, I saw, I saw in the, uh, reflected in my computer, the window was behind me. We had big giant windows, almost floor to ceiling, and they were, um, we had the whole floor, my department. And behind me, reflected in my computer, I saw this like uh, weird kind of fluttering. And I looked around and it looked like confetti was falling right. outside the window. And this is like, whatever it is, eight o'clock in the morning. I'm yeah. not sure what time, about eight o'clock. And I walked up to the window to see what it was. And, and as I looked at the confetti, I realized that it was like office paper, like, you know, eight and a half by 11 office paper, not confetti. Right. And then when I looked even closer at one of the sheets of paper, the edges of it were on fire as it was falling from the sky. Like the edges of the paper were burning. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like a we. It was like a Sur- Tim Burton movie. Surreal, yeah. Yeah, it was completely surreal. Yeah, and it took all morning long to kind of like grapple with what was happening as mm-hmm. it's happening around you, kind of more or less soundlessly. You know, you don't. You're not hearing the sirens. You're not really seeing down into the streets because right. we were on the so- 18th floor or something, or maybe higher. So you could see the, but you could see the World Trade Center. Clearly, yeah. eight blocks away, like stick, you could see the top half of both buildings, right? Because they were taller than anything else. So yeah. they just burst up past everything else. Right. So Could you see the... Like, some people saw the second plane hit. Right. I, I wasn't there when that happened. I was turned. I was talking to somebody and other people saw it. But you heard them scream right. when they saw it. And then... Oh, my gosh. Again... Uh, Later in the morning, people were, everybody was lined up at the windows watching the towers, both of them burning. Yeah. And I heard um, my boss, Sharon, who I mentioned earlier, the martini drinking, three martini lunch lady, boss, very put together, 60-year-old Manhattan woman. You know, you could set a bomb off next to Sharon and, you know, nothing, she wouldn't react. Unfazed. And I heard her scream, it's coming down. Right. She screamed it like a scream of horror. And I turned away from the window. Mm. Like I did not want to see that. Which my wife later told me, my wife's a therapist. And she said that was a really healthy reaction to not want to see it. Right. Because I was like, I'll be seeing that in my nightmares for the rest of my life. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know what that looks like. For all I knew, it was falling over like sideways. You know, I didn't know what right. that meant, but it was like, I'm not looking. Oh. And for months, I, it was a really long time before I would ever watch it happen on the news. Like the footage. Because for the next like t- two weeks, they played the buildings coming down Non-stop. over and over and over, like at commercial breaks and stuff. Yeah. And it was like, no, I don't want to see it at all. You know, it was like um how was it like leaving that day or like how did you get out of those buildings and was it pandemonium no, well what happened was you know we didn't um i'll try to tell it short yeah. but when the first after shortly after the first building came down the sky filled with smoke and ash right and that quickly turned from like um gray to brown to black until it was like there was a black velvet curtain hung over the windows and you couldn't see anything anymore it was just a um mirror now right right and so we didn't know you know what was happening and there wasn't 
that somebody had a, like a transistor radio, but they were talking about the Pentagon and Pennsylvania and stuff, and we were under attack. So they weren't really talking about what was happening right around us, mm -hmm. you know. So we didn't know. And we thought maybe we're going to have to spend the night here. Like we might be here for days. So we went down to the cafeteria to get supplies and we started to like, it was like, do we need blankets? And starting to think about how to prepare for maybe being in the building for a couple of days and surviving that. And um, at some point there was a sound like uh, nothing I've ever heard. It was like a manhole cover, you know, the size of God falling. And it was, what it was, was the second, second tower building, falling. Yeah. You could hear it. You couldn't hear the first one, but you could hear the second one. And it made just this God awful, like clank from hell sound. Mm -hmm. And everybody like sort of got it very quiet, but because it was pitch black, you know? Right. So you we didn't know see. what it was, but right. you sort of, you knew what it was. Like right. I, whoever I was talking to, I said, I hope that wasn't what I think that was. And she was like, yeah, me too. But we knew. Right. Cause you know, it was burning and uh, the first one went. So obviously that's what it was. <laughs> and eventually the smoke cleared enough that they decided to let people go. Um, so they grouped us according to where our destination was. So if you were in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn right. people left together in a pack, the Jersey people left in a pack and they, they gave us claws to cover our faces. Cause it was like, you know, hell outside, you know, and we made our way uh, to the water, which was like two blocks away. We were very close to the water's edge. Right. And I was like, I'm finding a boat. I don't care. I'm getting on a boat and I'm getting off this island. That's what I'm doing. So we found like a pleasure, a pleasure boat with an awning, like mm -hmm. a sort of sightseeing boat for right. maybe like 12 people or 20. And we got on it. He, he didn't have any passengers and we got on it when it was full. He he took us across the river to New Jersey. Right. But he took us sort of around the tip before he did, you know, around, we were at the very bottom right. and the towers were sort of over to the, to the West side. Mm -hmm. So he took us, I think it was his normal route up, up the side. And so you could see it now from the water. And Sweet that was, chills. yeah, because I mean, for, everybody's lifetime you'd seen these two buildings mm -hmm. rising up they, they they weren't very pretty buildings and they were way out of scale yeah you know and you were like oh, i hate those things i wish they were gone and now they were gone right and it's like oh my god i wish they were back you know it looked like an amputee looks mm -hmm. like oh my god all you see is what's not there something drastic and this like incredible belching uh funnel of smoke was rising up Mm -hmm. from where they had been um, and the sky it was the most beautiful day Labor Day or the day after Labor Day and it was perfect perfect weather like 73 degrees blue blue sky you know fresh air mm -hmm. and this god awful thing sure yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> So, so that was 9-11. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know. Commercial That's, break. No. <laughs> <laughs> you have a Kleenex? Right. <laughs>
<laughs> that's a that's a uh, also a hugely traumatic um, experience yeah. to have in your body, right? Because you yes had that in your body, the feeling of um, being eight blocks away. When I was a boy, I was I was really into the Titanic, and I built models of it and stuff. And they would occasionally have people who had been on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. They were very old and ancient, but they were still there, you know mostly British, and they would interview them. And they'd say, you know, oh, you know, you were on the Titanic, weren't you, Rose? And, you know, tell us about that. And the, and the person would say, I don't really want to talk about it, love. Mm. Now I'd, I'd rather not. <laughs> and I was like so frustrated, like, come on, you were on the Titanic, tell me about it. And after 9-11, I was like, oh, I get it. Right. I get it. You yeah. don't want to go there. Rehashing that. The, the horror. Right. It's like you relive your trauma somewhere in your body. Sure. Yeah. So was that the catalyst to bring you to Orlando? Pretty much in the sense that they they began downsizing. Um, most of my department was let go and I wasn't. But, you know, now I'm doing the work of, you know, the 30 people who are gone. Sure. It, it just was a it was a bad year the next year. Right. Oh, so you stayed for another year. Okay. Yeah. But it was a very, very, very unhappy year. And then I, I got offered a freelance job in, in Orlando and I began to commute um, oh. every week back and forth. And that was pretty tough. And there were no real jobs in New York anymore. And I wanted to leave. And I so, you know, there were other personal issues involved that are too complex to go into here. But. Anyway, we went. Time was right to. Yeah, the time was right to get a change of scene. So we came to Orlando, and that was in finally in 04 that we moved here. Oh, okay. Yeah, like two years of commuting. Wow. Yeah. I got really good. So good welcome at, to Orlando. Yeah, thanks. Right. Good to be point. here. Um, so. I would love to know how transitioning to Orlando was. And then I would really love to also talk about how you got connected with Pashakasha and um, how that passion found I feel, you. I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking. This is the whole... Too much Eddie. No, this is the name of the game. Okay. Yeah, this is why I have you here. I want to hear your story. All right, all right. Yeah. Well, let's see. So... Um, I'll tell you kind of the quick version and then you can, you can dig in if you want to. But uh, when I moved here, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anyone except maybe a couple of people I had worked with in the past uh, who had helped me get the job. And I had had I, um, around that time, what had complicated the, the whole situation at the end of that was I had uh, jaw surgery that was related to orthodontia, but it was very complex and took a long time and had to be redone and it was kind of a mess. So, but, and my wife had breast cancer around the Mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. So when we came here, we had both been through that. She had, she was bald, you know, she had broken her collarbone riding a horse because she rides and she shouldn't have been riding while she was doing chemo, but she did and paid the price. Right. So we were the walking wounded when we came here, you know, just barely made it. Yeah. I mean, right. 9-11, jaw surgery, broken collarbone, cancer, you know, daughter off to college, like 
what happened, Mm -hmm. you know, like a, like a bomb had gone off, you know? So I think for the first few years here, it was just kind of like recovering, you know, not so much survival mode, just sort of after you go through big, big stuff, you just Mm -hmm. sort of want a period of quiet to, to rest up and recover and regroup, Mm -hmm. you know? And then it was probably, I joined Toastmasters and that was kind of what led me to Pachak Shop because Toastmasters has a very, um, uh, like a program when you begin, when you begin it, that's pretty organized and strict. And so they take you through different components of public speaking. And when I got to the part about, about visual aids, I, I tend to sort of overdo things. So I got a book about visual aids and in the book, they talked about Pachakasha and the format. And what was really cool and intriguing was the idea that this was public speaking in a restaurant or a bar or a nightclub after hours, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of, you know, corporate PowerPoint presentations that I had been doing for my career for like, you know, at 20 years at that point suddenly you know people are doing them in nightclubs hmm. and i was like wow that sounds really cool mm-hmm. you know so i wanted to go to one but i had to wait until there was one close enough and the right timing to go to and that turned out to be tampa okay not too far so one night in whatever it was somewhere between 08 and 09 somewhere in there mm-hmm. i drove down to tampa with my friend steve uh, you know, after work, and we went to Pachaksha, Tampa, mm-hmm. and it was just great. It was so great. Mm-hmm. The talks were really interesting. One was the history of hairdressing. One was about how the cell phone, and you got to remember, this is like oh nine. Yeah. It was like how the cell phone is going to revolutionize people's lives the mm-hmm. same way the printing press did, and other other fascinating talks. So, and the thing that really struck me was the audience, which was about 250 people. Every person in the audience looked like, like I was saying about New York people, they looked smart and awake and interesting. Yeah. Engaged. That's a good word. Yeah. So, and I found that I, I was, my reaction was like, wow, I'd like to get to know these people because, Mm -hmm. you know, having, having grown up in LA and, and, worked in New York and lived out up there. I I knew what kind of person I wanted to hang out with and be around and it was very hard to find people like that in Orlando mm. because everything in Orlando was kind of spread out and there wasn't a you know, there wasn't a gathering place for those people. Yeah. You know, at all. And it everything seemed at the time to be nothing but like chilies and macaroni grill and disney and universal that was it i feel like things were just starting at that time like places like the ravenous pig and starting um right you know people being aware of even going to bob carr at the time or kind of like the cultural things were starting to yes formulate it all sort of started at like in 2010 yeah when did dinner party projects start um, 2014. 2012? Okay. Mm-hmm. Close. Credo, the OG Credo started in 2010. Um, and just so many other, like, cultural, I feel like, touchstones for Orlando, you know, 
Berkeley. Right, most of the public speaking events, Nerd Night, mm-hmm. um, I think Diverse Word probably mm-hmm. predated been, some of that. Yeah, has been around for... Right. 13 um, years? Yeah, probably? like so... Yeah. Yeah. Dandelion was... was yeah, becoming more and more. Anyway, yes, right. so... Right, so it, it, it is kind of interesting that we got on that wave at the same time as everybody else did. And I, you know, I sometimes think that, you know, maybe we had some influence on that too, you know? What do you mean? In the sense that we, what's, what is different about Pachaksha Night than, than most other events like this is that most events have a, like a, let's say a common purpose to them. You know, there's something you're there to do mm-hmm. or hear about. Learn about, right. In a but Pachaksha Night is about anything. So the speakers at, at uh, any given Pachaksha night uh, could be, you know, Albert Monero, who makes prosthetic limbs for mm-hmm. children born with disabilities, or Maya Mom, who's a mermaid at Wikiwashi Mermaid Camp, uh-huh. or Cole Neesmith talking about creative community, or Jenny DeWitt talking about being held up at gunpoint in the, in the like, a lobby of a motel. Right. And so there, there's no particular agenda. It's everybody who's got a great story to tell. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, um, you know, in a small way, we, we helped further that creative renaissance because of just the breadth of people that we attracted, mm-hmm. you know. And then they talk to each other or they hear each other talk or they meet in the audience Particularly in the early days, too, it was, you know, we were all in one big room together. It was a very fermented atmosphere, you know, mm-hmm. like 300 people in a what box. What was some of your, I mean, I think the first one that I went to was at Orange Studios, but what was some of your first, like, venues? Yeah, well, we started in Cameo on ah, Colonial yeah. at Mills. That was Before our first snap. event. Yeah. It was a nightclub at the time. Right. It didn't have any signage. It was very lowbrow and very seedy. It was seedy. a black box cedar. It was... Right? For a while? I think it was probably after that. Okay. Because I saw something at, in the theater there at Cameo a million years ago. But... It was... It had, like, uh, exposed brick walls. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much empty. Mm-hmm. It had a bar toward the front. And we just set up a screen and chairs, metal chairs, mm-hmm. grabbed from somewhere. Yeah. And we had 31 people. So the room, you know, was bigger than our crowd for sure. Right. And it felt 31 very... 31 guests. 31 listeners. paying customers. Right. And then I think we had eight speakers. Okay. Yeah. And then <laughs> right. assorted spouses and friends. Um you know what's weird is at the at the last Pachaksha night, which was on Zoom earlier this year, mm-hmm. the most recent one, one of our speakers was Angelique Luna, who's a sex positive podcaster okay. with her husband John. And uh, I found I don't even know how I found John and Angelique, but I was I was specifically looking for someone to talk about the topic of bisexuality. Mm-hmm. And John and Angelique are bisexual and talk about bisexuality and have groups and websites about it. So that's how I found them, right? And she told me that she was in that first audience. 
that she just randomly heard about it, uh, randomly bought a $5 ticket. Right. And was in the audience for the very first one. Right. Which is just so amazing. It comes full circle. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Really. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Life is very strange. Life is very strange. There's some kind of invisible, you know, yeah. netting. So how the many have you store. had and how many years have you been going? The the first one at the cameo was October 2010. Okay. So next month is our 10th anniversary. Yeah. It would have been our 30th event mm -hmm. if the Dr. Phillips Center was open. I basically decided not to do our 30th event over Zoom because I feel like it's too big of an occasion to make it a Zoom call. Yeah. So instead, we're going to we're working on a documentary about the history of the event mm -hmm. that will be the will debut in October as part of the oh, cool. celebration of our 10th. Right. Yeah. That is a big celebration. It is pretty big milestone. 10 years. Yeah. Because your last ones, as you grew through the years and went, came up in the ranks uh, um, in the following and all the things, but um, have been at Dr. Phillips, right. which is such a beautiful, also it's really cool and beautiful to see the arts elevated within Orlando within the last 10 years. Yeah. And then we have this state of the art performing down the street. Yeah. Um, and you get to be able to be um, showcased there. As soon as I heard they were building that theater, it was sort of my dream to, to do the event there. And oh. it, it, it's funny now it doesn't seem like such a big deal, but at the time it was no. a very big deal. It is a big deal. D to get in there. I mean, to be able to, to do it there. It required some rethinking and, and, you know, it's a way more expensive proposition than doing it at like Orange Studio, you know, is a, it's a big empty room. And, and, you know, Julio Lima was really nice about our rental fee. It was very low and our yeah. ticket price was, I think like $10 mm -hmm. cash at the door, hand it to Rebecca. She puts it in the cash <laughs> right. box. You know, it was very, it was very loose. Right. Right. Dr. Phillips Center is like, oh, now you got a box office. You got amazing costs for everything. If someone like picks up a dropped piece of gum, like you're paying, I'm paying that person to, you know, pick it up. Off pick that up. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not an easy place to do the event. It probably, um, you know, it costs us about like $5,000 to put an event on there. That's like out of pocket, right. what we pay out of pocket. And then there's their, their um, what's the word I want? Their percentage of the box office gross. Okay. So, and they take about 60% of the box office. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. Yeah. And if you're listening to Dr. Phillips, we love you and you know, <laughs> come back soon. Right. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It was a whole different proposition. So it required me turning, you know, creating a nonprofit 501c3 and and working on the finances so that it was doable. Right. You know, and then also we had to think about what's the event like now that it's in the theater? Because it's mm. it in the past, you know, it had a really appealing quality of like it just sort of magically appeared one night in this empty room. Yeah. You know, there was no stage the presenters and the audience were just packed together. No difference, no differentiation. Right, we're all in this together. Yeah, right. and it, that was really wonderful. I mean, yeah. it really felt great to be in that room. 
300, you know, cool people all pet mashed in together, mm -hmm. you know, listening to interesting stuff. And, and five is drinking. like electric. Yeah. Right. And so I really thought a lot about, you know, what's it going to be like if it's up on a stage with, you know, the theatricality that, that comes with that. And the fact that if people are going to pay, you know, $25 for a ticket, by Dr. Phillips standards, that's that's a low price. Like right. Cats is going to be one twenty five, or the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. But so our ticket is low for the Dr. Phillips Center, but it's still someone's shelling out twenty five dollars for their seat. Mm -hmm. They need to see something that looks like worth it. You know, that's entertaining them. Right. So we had to think a lot about music and lighting and show flow and other things you yeah. know, to make it feel like something worth worth paying for mm -hmm. you know not that it wasn't before but but in the earlier days it was kind of a it was a almost like a it it felt it felt like a spontaneous kind of community uprising mm -hmm. you know and now it's a show right so it's, I mean, it's the price of success in a way, right? It's like Starbucks. Starbucks used to, you probably don't remember this, but when Starbucks first came to America from, from Vancouver to Seattle and then a little bit into California, this was like 91, right? You would go into a Starbucks and they'd be like, well, what do you want to have? And I'd be like, I'll have a Sumatra and Java. Can you mix Sumatra and Java? And they'd be like, sure. And they'd open a drawer and they'd scoop out the Sumatra beans and the Java beans and they'd put them in a grinder and grind them and then pour your coffee like right there. Right. It was totally bespoke at Starbucks. And it was the best coffee anybody ever had in their life. Yeah. Yeah. And for them to grow, they couldn't keep doing that. So, you know, gradually everything became kind of mechanized. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And it's sort of, it's not the same anymore, but it's, you, you have to do that if you're going to grow something. Right. Well, I mean, I feel like I've seen you over the years, like growing this and putting so much of your hard work and effort, blood, sweat, and tears into Pashakasha and um, cheers to you. Yes, cheers. cheers. I'll drink to that. Thank you. And Clink. how much we need people like you in our city to be able to grow things that are unique and special and that people are engaged with um, because people don't come to cities to go to big box stores or to go to the same old thing with um, a city that has such diversity in the arts and people that are like adding to it. Like I just feel grateful that you're in the city and that you're doing the things that you're doing. And yeah. Well, right back at you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but along those lines, we are going to transition to our next topic, which is the Enneagram. Oh, great. Yes. Okay. Which is something that of course I am very passionate about. Um, and we've talked about it a little bit. But um, from what you know of the Enneagram and have seen, um, you would, um, and what I know of you is, yeah, uh, would you would probably say that you are in an eight, right? I, I am an eight. You are an eight. Yes. Yes. Eight is the challenger. Ladies. And um, I am also an eight. Mm -hmm. um, which it comes of no surprise in the um 
Yeah. Having, uh, for me, the Enneagram as kind of like a language and a roadmap and a way of kind of understanding myself better and the motivations of why I do the things that I do and the understanding that not everybody is built in the same way for me was very enlightening and empowering to be able to understand myself better and be more self-aware and then to be also to understanding where other people are coming from and having to know that we don't all come from the same place we're not cut from the same cloth we need all different personalities to thrive in a community right. we can't have all visionaries we can't have like all worker bees no right? we certainly don't want to have all eights we that don't want to have all eights no. nothing would get done yeah it's crazy Just people yelling at each other right <laughs> yeah we definitely don't want to have all eights yeah so if we were a world with eights obviously that wouldn't really um help anything get uh, accomplished probably all chiefs no <laughs> right um but i think it is pretty cool and important to like understand that there are people that have the capacity to be able to see into something that has never been done before kind of like you had done with pashaksha um different people in the city doing different things that are very unique I, I think, though, uh, one thing I would just say, and I'm, it's not I'm not saying this for purposes of modesty exactly, but, you know, I, it's not like like Pachaksha became something and it became something largely because the community really liked it and came to it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I, the genius of Pachaksha is in the format, really. That, that's what attracts people, right? It is in the format, but it also is someone that has to take it and make it into a reality. So you brought something here that was never before understood by people. Nobody had ever heard of this concept before it was here in Orlando for the most part. And so somebody that had the vision to be able to start up from the nothing in Orlando yeah, I, I mean, yes, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I, I know what you mean, but I, I would also say, like, it's like, uh, you know, it was flourishing in other cities. So I, I knew that it worked and I didn't I didn't invent it. Right. Mark and Astrid invented it in Tokyo and it had been going for, I guess, like seven years by the time, you know, I started it here. So it was a going concern. Right. Um, I think that. I think that my contribution, I guess, is a little hard to parse it out, but, you know, it was essentially my certainty that it would get bigger when it started out very small. Mm -hmm. You know, even that first night in the cameo, it was very rough and we had a lot of AV problems. You know, the I, I trusted the bar to supply the AV. That was a huge mistake. So the <laughs> computer stopped working right. and froze up and the lights, you know, didn't work right. And, the, you know, it was it was a mess right. from an from an AV standpoint, it was a mess. I didn't think to rehearse the speakers. They just kind of showed up and did their thing. They were okay. mostly Toastmasters. Sure. Um, so I, I, I didn't think, oh, let's rehearse them. And that turned out to be a mistake for a couple of but them. But you did what you had with what you had. Like, you, you know, was, like you started it, I definitely somewhere. had a learning curve, right. you know, is what I'm saying. Sure. I think people tend to extrapolate backwards, right? So they look at, 
you know, me on stage at the Dr. Phillips Center doing this fantastically successful event. And they say, wow, what a vision you had. It's like, well, I don't know. I mean, one step at a time, maybe like a, a vision about the next step. But if if you had taken 2010 Eddie and stuck him on the stage of the Dr. Phillips Center, you would not have had a good evening. Yeah. I, I wasn't ready no. for that. Then. Yeah. You know, it was definitely climbing a staircase. Yeah. You know, one kind of painful step at a time. <laughs> you know, people people think they look at the end product of other people's success and they say oh i want that and it's yeah. like well do you the do you want to work to like there. a dog for 10 years no <laughs> you know right. well okay yeah yeah how have you kind of um had awareness throughout your life and your career of just your own self-awareness and how you operate and how you show up in the world versus maybe your wife who might be different um in the ways that she interprets the world and inhabits space how have you kind of interpreted that? Well, my, so Enneagrams, right? I don't know what her Enneagram is, but she's a Scorpio, my wife. Okay. So she shows up in the world as very powerful mm-hmm. and very self-assured and very mm-hmm. definite, even when maybe she isn't, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Scorpios are just like everybody else. They have their... They have their moments of insecurity and self-doubt and confusion, but they would never show them to you. <laughs> you know, they would rather die right. than admit any sort of weakness. So she shows up in the world as a much more powerful person than maybe she personally feels like she is. Hmm. And I don't know that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know really how I show up in the world, for one thing. Like we, we don't know. We know what's going on inside of ourselves, mm-hmm. and we know all the dark corners and the, the, the messes that we're dealing with. And we're kind of, you know, other people don't know those things about us, so they just see the kind of, you know, the projection. Mm-hmm. So honestly, I don't know how to answer that question, really. I think that, I mean, I can take a stab at it. I think, I, I think that I probably show up as more... And again, I'm not saying this is the reality of the two of us, but I probably show up as more outgoing, fun-loving, up for anything than she does. You know, maybe less serious, mm-hmm. you know, in good and bad ways. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly sure. how we show up. How we show up. Plus, you know, you got to remember this, too. We've been married for, like... 38 years and who we were 38 years ago is not who we are now either. Uh, Of course, we're very complex beings that are always growing and morphing and changing and breaking and healing. And I mean, right. Yeah. Right. And who you are now is a sort of like, you know, container of all the other yous that you used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, a complex thing too because again I think I, I see this more as I get older like people look at who I am now mm-hmm. and they assume that I was always this guy mm. and yes and no I mean yes in some ways like you know my my sort of uh, what's the word the way I look at the world the way I think about the world the way I interact with the world I, I think that's been pretty consistent mm-hmm. you know like my attitude 
toward the world. But, you know, again, uh, I was I was very, you know, insecure, scared, mm-hmm. un, unsure young man. You know, I kind of covered it up with a lot of smart talk, <laughs> but I don't I don't know who's probably a lot of people saw through that. Right. Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, until I was 30, I really didn't have a clue. And then around the age of 30, I learned about intuition, following your intuition. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like brought a lot of ideas I had already like sort of encountered, brought them together. And it gave me a kind of sense of like, oh, I can I can really like trust myself at a very Mm -hmm. deep level. I can believe the things I believe are true. I can act on them. I don't need to be afraid to do the thing that I I really want to do and Mm -hmm. think is right. And I can just go ahead and do it. And that was a that was a pretty radical thought at that point. But that was really a huge turning point. And that's the thing with life is that we are never done growing. We're never done like. Just, I think, discovering more about ourselves. Um, and so for me, digging into the Enneagram has also, the Enneagram is also kind of like a mirror where it reflects back to you. Mm. Um, and so I think knowing how I show up in the world is also pretty important because that allows me to interact more gracefully with other people. And so being, sometimes having the capacity of, of, um, great friendships in your life to be able to say, how do I show up in the world? Right. Cause we do have blind spots and we do have ways that we don't see, like, I think I show up in the world is this way, but maybe other people see me as XXX. Right. And so sometimes it's, um, such a huge blessing to be able to get that perspective to also like say like oh is that the person that I want to be or do I also want to like figure out what it looks like for me to grow and like the Enneagram says hey when you're healthy maybe it looks like this so you kind of have those triggers and then when you're stressed out maybe it looks like this and so having that awareness um, for me was like super helpful to kind of catch myself sometimes and say like, well, I don't want to go down that path or I don't want to be that person. So I can look at myself honestly, mm-hmm. which takes a lot of, a lot of courage, right. You know, to, to be able to be honest with ourselves. It, I think really it wasn't until I began meditating, which was about mm-hmm. 10 years ago as well. Mm-hmm. And I did it a lot then I hardly ever do it now, but it changes you. You know, mm-hmm. kind of permanently when you do it a yeah. lot. And that was the first time that I ever really, really looked at myself. Um, because what happens when you meditate is eventually you begin to sort of separate from your ego and you do you do it? Have you done it? Do you know what I'm um, I do about? some meditation and prayer in that same spaces, like holding that space. Mm-hmm. So in the so in the process, you know, you you begin to when you separate from your ego, you can see it kind of objectively and not be in it. Mm-hmm. Like you, for the first time, you're not your ego. You're watching your ego. And when I I have to assume this is the same for everyone, but when I watched my ego, it was like I've said to people, it was like looking at a cockroach. Only mm. a cockroach, like maybe under glass, where right. it can't hurt me. Mm. But I'm looking at it, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness, this is wow! It's it's so 
it's so frantic and busy and mindless and it only knows its own needs and it's just frantically trying to get its own needs Way. met yeah. that's all it wants and that's what your ego is it's and you begin to notice that your ego will all it wants is to be like like right basically mm. but it wants to be also more right anybody else and more special and different in a good way than other people and that's its agenda and it will it will turn anything into that it will take any experience no matter how sacred and turn it into shit because it'll it just wants that it's you know and pardon me if i offend any of your listeners but someone like donald trump is an example of pure ego Mm -hmm. it's like me 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 you don't even exist except as a sort of scrim for me to reflect myself on in a new way Mm -hmm. you know i'm seeing myself as you see me you know it's like Mm -hmm. oh man and no you know really our egos and it's all of us right our egos have no real conscience you know they're they're just self-serving yeah they're just a machine right they're a machine for being right is what they are and by the way like that's actually a good thing because your ego needs to be right you need an ego right Mm -hmm. because if you're going to go out in the world you need to know what the threats are what's good and bad what's going to kill you what's going to nurture you what's Mm going to feed you how to be safe, how to stay alive. Mm-hmm. That's what your ego is for. It's a guidance system. And it better be right about things. Right. Because if it's wrong, you die. So people, you know, I think that a lot of religions, you know, the idea is to like subjugate your ego or get rid of your ego or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, good luck with that. Yeah. You're never getting rid of it. It's your operating system. It, 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 it's, it's, it can serve a purpose. It does serve a purpose. It's yeah. absolutely necessary. Right. It's like, but it doesn't need to, it's the operating system, but it doesn't need to decide everything. <laughs> you know, Having it's a good servant and mm-hmm. a very bad master. Yeah. And so you get that separation and you learn that there's some other part of you that is not that. Some more mystical part of you mm. doesn't, doesn't, isn't locked into that. And you can get away from it. At least briefly so you can kind of see it right that self-awareness right for it's beautiful bits at a offering. time I, i've often said like you can get away from your ego the same way that like a trampoline will get you away from gravity right mm-hmm. you can get away for a little it's bit but you are gonna a little bit you're gonna come crashing back to your right. ego and that's okay that's yeah. how it's meant to be um but yeah, I'm not sure how we got onto this yeah, ego right. path, but yeah, that was that was a turning point again. Uh, first intuition and trusting myself, and then meditation and kind of separating from myself, and um, and seeing myself more objectively, and and you know, seeing myself, you know, without the without the romanticism of who I wish I was or who I like to think I am Mm -hmm. or, you know, who in my best moments I kind of can imitate (laughs) and seeing that, you know, really I'm like every other person, I'm, I'm just struggling to like get through the day, you know, Mm, the humanity that you have 
and yeah. then being able to be aware to offer humanity to other people on a good day. Right. That's the hope, right? Right. Yeah. Or to just maybe like the Buddhists say, do no harm. Like just try not to just try to get through the day, not damaging anybody else or myself. That's mm-hmm. a victory. Yeah. You know, so our final topic, uh, is one of my absolute favorite ones, which is rest. Um, and so um, the time that we can have to kind of stop working, uh, and be able to do things in our lives that give us the opportunity to restore and renew and heal and regenerate so that we can offer our best selves to the world. Um, and that could look like a lot of different things like rest in the sense of, you know, it could be definitely physically resting, but, um, play discovery, engaging, physically resting, um, going on an adventure. Like what are some practices in your life that you have um, adopted that bring you kind of like a, Mm. bring you to a place of, of rest and renewal? I'm not very good at resting or taking it easy mm. or turning it off. Uh, that's a that's a not something I've ever developed very well. I think that I I'm, I've always been very interested in movies and particularly old movies. Mm-hmm. I find old movies like really well in the beginning. I think I found them very interesting because they're like a little window into the past where you're almost like a peephole and you're looking at 1935 and how people <laughs> like made themselves up and how they talked and walked and dressed and what their apartments looked like and what the world looked like. It's fascinating. And as time has gone by and I've gotten more familiar with it, um, that that aspect of it is maybe less intriguing because I know it, but it I find them very soothing. You know, they're they're usually much better written than movies are now. You know, they're wittier, they're more clever. Yeah. Um, there's this I like the kind of stylized acting because they're not um, is people think I, I think sometimes now people think, oh, well, that was bad acting. And now we have good acting, but that they didn't know how to act then because it's so strange to us because mm-hmm. it's formal and it's kind of stylized. But they really did know what they were doing. And, and of course, they weren't they didn't all have the same skill level. Some of them were better than others, but just like now. Right. And a, and a great actor then or now can do the same thing, which is what a really great actor can do is a few things like they can they can really keep you on your toes. Like you don't know what they're going to do next. You're in a state of alertness because you're watching this fascinating human being and you're not quite sure what they're going to come up with. Mm-hmm. And great actors at any point in history are able to do that. So I really like watching that a lot. <laughs> um, the other thing a great actor can do is a great actor can can enlarge your understanding of of yourself and the world. Can increase, you know, like a great actor can show you a character doing something really bad, but you understand why they're doing it and the kind of thought process that's leading them down this path. And you you're, have empathy for them, right? You can. Uh, Right. And I think that was, you know, I'm not well educated enough to be able to pull this right out. But there I think like Greek tragedy was all about like pity and terror and the kind of vicarious experience of 
getting close up to tragedy and sort of watching it unfold and seeing that in, you know, classical tragedy unfolds from out of character. Mm. It's, you know, our... How's it go? How's Shakespeare's line go? Our faults are not in our stars, but in ourselves. Mm. No. The root of tragedy is flawed character, bad choices, you know, limited knowledge. Yeah. Just plain old mistakes, you know, that don't seem so bad while they're being made or they seem logical. Mm. So that's a long answer to your question, but essentially, you know, I find it very soothing to just sit down with, you know, a story. Claudette Colbert or, you know, yeah, um, yeah an old movie that is going to entertain me and delight me and isn't going to go on and on. It's going to be like between 60 and 90 minutes and they're going to tell their story and be done with it. Just like yeah. Pachacha. <laughs> yeah. A little brand, a little commercial there. I yes. snuck that in. I, uh, I quite agree that I think for me getting lost in a story also helps me to kind of get out of the moment that I'm in and be able to. Um, well, also it helps you make sense of things, right? That's, yeah. I think, why we tell stories. Because experiences, there's a lot going on. It's all kind of random. It feels kind of chaotic. And a story takes all that and it puts it in a kind of, you know, uh, logical order where you can kind of understand. Oh, I see. Mm. You know. And sometimes for me, it helps me get in touch with my own emotions. Definitely. Um, yeah. So seeing it, um, you know, played out and how um, other people are handling it or how I might have been in that situation. Um, I really love cathartic. helping people uh, to tell their stories better. Mm-hmm. That's something I feel really strongly about. And that I that's one of my greatest joys of Pachaksha. That would be like right up there at the top Yeah, is, you know, as we rehearse, as we work, as I work with each speaker, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, let's figure out how to tell the story for like maximum impact. Like, let's really think about, you know, how we're going to tell it, what the, what the moment is that, that is the most powerful thing and how we're going to lead up to it and really make it like pay off. Mm-hmm. Um, What's the what's the thing about this story that's going to resonate with people hmm. that's going to grab them? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's it's the arc of it. Sometimes it's, it can be made up of details. A story I love to tell is I saw Gina Duncan. Do you know Gina? I don't believe so. So Gina's a, a really great trans advocate in Orlando. And she I first saw her giving a TED talk at, um, I think, I forget the venue, but she talked about her journey as a trans person and growing up as like, like a lot of trans people do, you know, they're born into one sex and they feel instinctively that they're Mm -hmm. not that the other sex and they, what they usually do first is they try super hard to be the very best at the sex they're born into. Hmm. So they're overachievers at, at that. So Gina was like the high school football captain. I, I might be getting the details wrong, but an overachiever, right? And got married, had two kids, um, but had a secret life hmm. where, you know, she would have women's clothes and wear them when she was alone. 
And she said, my biggest fear was that my wife was going to find my stash of clothes. And that happened mm-hmm. one day. And Gina came home. Wife's got, you know, the negligee or whatever. And right. it's like, you're having an affair. Who is she? What's going on? And so Gina had to fess up and explain. Right. Right. I'm really a woman. This is who I am for real. And in her TED Talk, she said she had this great, great line. She said, I watched my wife's blue eyes turn gray Mm -hmm. as she backed away from me Mm -hmm. and said, our marriage is over. Get out of the house. You're not going to, you know, do this here. Yeah. But it was the blue eyes turning gray that was just, just so powerful. And when, when, so rehearsing the Pachakasha, which it might be the exact same talk, but when you turn it into a Pachakasha, it's a whole different talk. Okay. <laughs> you have to rewrite no matter what it is. Right. So she's rehearsing and she tells that story without the, without the detail. And I'm like, when she's done, I'm like, Gina, where's the blue eyes turning gray? And she's like, oh, whatever. Yeah. I didn't think, you know, I'm like, no, that no, no. That was the impactful moment. You have to. Right. Like, let's really set that up. That's got to be its own kind of thing mm-hmm. in this talk. That scene is a slide, you know, because it gets you. You're there. Mm-hmm. You're in the room. You're feeling it along with her. You know, what yeah. is that like to someone you love, your your partner right. freezes over like that and freezes you out. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So it's finding those kinds of details and working them so that the and trusting that that the everybody in the audience pretty much is going to react the same way to that that I did. Mm -hmm. It's it's again, that self-trust. It's like I pretty much believe that that the stories that resonate with me are going to resonate with the audience, that the, the details and the the parts that are really impactful are going to impact other people that way too. Being able to read that and pull that out. Yeah. To find it and, and polish it. I mean, most of the time, most of the time it's, it's already there. You just have to, you know, to one degree or another, Mm -hmm. you you sort of shape it. Right. All right. So we have one final question before I let you go. Uh, Do you have any uh, mantra or MO that you, uh, live your life by that you would share with us? Yeah, it's trust your intuition. That's that's it. Mm-hmm. Everyone has it. Everyone. It's talking to you all the time. It's mm-hmm. telling you what's right for you and what's wrong. It's telling you what you want. And, and so often I think we discount it. We argue with it or we shout it down or we dominate it. You know, and we say, no, you can't have that because X. You'll never get that. That's too hard to try for. It's impossible. Or wanting that makes you a bad person or a weirdo. Or I don't know, all the million ways that our ego, again, our ego wants to protect us. Yeah. So it can really get in the way of listening to your intuition because it, it, in the, in this, with its purpose of protecting you, it can also stop you from fulfilling yourself and, mm-hmm. and being the person you want to be and doing the things you want to do. So you have to give your ego a kind of different role in your life or inside your head, whatever it is. And the role is to 
to help you get those things. So instead of arguing with you or being at odds with you, it's like, yeah, I, I think I really feel like I want to go skydiving. And your ego's like, are you nuts? <laughs> what are you talking about? We're going to die. Okay. And you're like, no, but I really, I really want to go skydiving. And your ego's like, absolutely I'm not. We're not doing that. But the correct role for your ego is like, how can I do this and live through it and be safe? I better enroll in skydiving school. I better take lessons. I should buy a trampoline. I should sign up. I, you know, how can I, your ego's job should be like, how can I get you this thing you desire in a way that feels safe? You know, like it's a servant, but, but you can trust that deeper thing that, and I'll say one more thing about intuition. I, what I have found practicing following it dedicatedly for 30 years is that it wants you it it wants you to come into balance it wants you to become a full rounded human being so it's frequently going to push you in directions that feel very uncomfortable mm-hmm. it's going to want you to try things that feel scary or unfamiliar and you're going to resist that because your ego wants to be comfortable and it's like why rock the boat You know, Mm -hmm. what are you talking about skydiving? You know, you could break your neck. Right. And it's so that's one of the ways, you know, it is your intuition. It's it's not about you being comfortable. It's about you being actualized, fully actualized. Exactly. The person that you're supposed to grow and fulfilled. Fulfilled. Right. And be I don't want to say be everything you can be because, uh, you know, not writing successories posters, but. That's what it wants. Mm. Thank you so much for taking the oh, time and spending some time day drinking with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always up for right. that. Yes. Um, so where would folks find you online or on social media? How do we keep track with what you're doing with Pachakshar? I would love it if people would check out Pachakshar Orlando's Facebook page, which is Pachakucha, all one word, mm-hmm. Orlando. It's pretty easy to find. Um, in October, we're going to have probably a post a day from past presenters talking about their experience, at least one a day. Some special guests weighing in um, our video. So I think that would be great if people went there. I do have a blog, although I, I really kind of stopped blogging in 2016. Okay. You know, <laughs> something made me depressed, so I stopped blogging. All right. <laughs> I don't know what. What could that have been? Yeah. But yeah, I got eddiesilver.com is out there if you want to read okay. my writing. Um, I write on that site. I have a lot of stuff about pop culture, old movies, um, some, you know, spiritual explorations mm-hmm. on there, too. Um, so that's how to find me. And, you know, the usual Googling. Well, I'll pop right up. Right now? There aren't a lot of celebers out there. Right? Yeah. I'm well, thank to find. you for bringing this celebrer. Thank over. you so much. Yeah. yeah. This was great. It was kind of like Dinner Party Project, only with just two of us. Right. <laughs> sharing stories, sharing a drink. Yeah. Yeah. I. This is like my uh, creative outlet. Like I said, it's just so fun to be able to hear something like that I've never known about you, you know, like how your life shaped and formed and 
it's just so fun to you're not you never know what you'll kind of like find out about people i bet and how much humanity we all have you know like i think that that's really a special thing to understand how stories um connect us yeah it's great it's great too to have the time to really dig into it and yeah talk about it so thank you for that too yeah well until next time until next time next time we'll talk about you all right okay thank you a million times over for listening to cocktails and conversation podcast i hope you have enjoyed all of it if you have would you do me a huge favor and rate comment and subscribe for more cocktails and conversations 